Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Jesus at the center of everything. Jesus, if he's not at the center of everything for you today, let's talk about that. Let's address it. Because Jesus is life. Last week, Pastor Julie presented a little story to us. She talked, I hear some chuckles out there already. (laughs) She talked about a dresser. And actually, it was a very compelling story. Very compelling, which focused on Jesus. Because it was by nothing, it was by nothing but uh, a sense of the Holy Spirit prompting her. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. She talked about that. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and quickens or gives life seemed to be prompting her. So she offered a dresser, my dresser, to my sister-in-law. And, you know, all because of that offer, all because uh, she made that offer to my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law went and cleaned out her dresser And she discovered a letter that had been in the drawer for 10 years. 10 years before my brother died, he wrote that letter. And uh, the discovery, the timing, the contents in the letter, the, the Holy Spirit was all over it. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 11, that we heard about, was all over it. And... It really had an impact on our lives. It was uh, powerful, and Julie presented it beautifully. The power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then she went on to say, because of that, that incident and, and about the death of my brother, she talked that death, you know, in this life isn't an end. It isn't an end. It's a beginning for those who are in Christ, those who have Jesus at, at the center of their life. But I just want to say that many of you asked me about that dresser because Julie said, you know, that was my childhood dresser. So if I could just for a moment tell you the rest of the story, as (laughs) Paul Carey used to say. Uh, The dresser. Okay, growing up, that was my childhood dresser. Now, I didn't really take anything from my house of any sentimental value when I was married to my beautiful wife, save for that dresser. All right, I grew up in a house of nine kids, seven boys, two girls. My grandma lived in the house too. So it it was a pretty packed household. In the one room, there was five boys. I was one of them. My two oldest brothers, they were in the basement. I always was jealous of that. There were two of them down there. They had their, the, the big basement. My two sisters had their own room. And, of course, my parents had their own room. And my dad had a little room put on the back of the house for grandma. So in that room of five, I had a dresser with six drawers. But only three of them were mine. That dresser that was up here last week, too, that wasn't my dresser. People asked me, I didn't have a, you know, a green dresser, no. It was this old maple dresser, six drawers, three belonged to me, three belonged to uh, my brother Tom at the time. And, you know, eventually I got all six drawers because, you know, brothers moved out and 
you know, finally that I, as I, I had arrived. I had six drawers. So when I got married, I took that thing with me because this was, you know, this, was, this meant something to me uh, that, that I had conquered all these older brothers in any way. Uh, I took it with me when we were married. So that day when I came home, she said, hey, I gave away your dresser. Oh, oh, it hit me a little bit. But you know what? That's life. It is. It's life. And it was a life experience. And uh, really because, as Julie said, the timing of it, there was something so much more heavy in our lives. I just lost my brother a couple of weeks before. I said, what? Whatever. It's just a dresser. And it's life. It's life. That's life. Uh, We're here on this earth to experience life here in the flesh. We have to deal with it. We have to roll with things like that. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about life in, in the next several weeks. But I want to begin today by saying life, life without the resurrection, life without the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it's meaningless. It, it, it really is. Without Jesus and his spirit, life, it holds no meaning. It's a futile effort. 2,000 years ago, Jesus and his 12 closest companions, we call the apostles, they sat down together in an upper room in Jerusalem. It was the annual Thanksgiving meal. It was their Passover meal. They gave thanks to God and honored God, remembered God for bringing the Hebrew people out of the nation of Egypt. They had been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years, and when they had come out of Egypt, God established this thing called the Passover to remind them that by his hand he had pulled them out of bondage and he wanted them to remember that those who had marked their door frames with the blood of the lamb, that the uh, angel of death had passed over. So it was a celebration. It was a memorial. Uh, And uh, this memorial, they understood that God's grace had been upon them. But on this particular Passover there with Jesus and his 12 closest companions, there was a heaviness in the air. There was a seriousness because it seemed that there was a separation that was going to occur. There was separation in the discussion. Jesus told them things like, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me again. And he said things like, I'm going to the Father. And the apostles, they were inquisitive. They were questioning. They were wondering, what does he mean by this? What's he talking about? I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. They didn't quite understand it all. And then the day after that festival, Jesus is killed. He's crucified. He's hung on a cross. And then he's laid in a tomb. And uh, these apostles that had uh, been so close around him and a small band of uh, disciples that maybe numbered upwards of 120 or so, I mean, they spent the next day just really in abject terror. Their, their master, their teacher, their rabbi had been, uh, he'd been executed. And then night came and, and, and even more terror. And then night turned into nights. But then at the end of a few nights, that first day of the week dawned, and that abject terror of theirs 
would come to an end forever. Some of the women of this group, they went down to the tomb to dress the body, and the body was not there. Mary Magdalene, she had lingered around for a while, and and then she saw him. She saw Jesus. She met him. And and later that night, as they were all gathered and wondering and, and marveling, Jesus himself came and he appeared to these who were his followers, and he spoke to them. And from that time forward, there was, we might say in modern day vernacular, a paradigm shift. There was a change in perspective. There was a change in outlook. Death was looked at differently by this group of people from that time forward. The power and the permanency of death had been shattered completely from that time forward. They led the world to believe in life not death, and in life more abundantly. When, when we think about what the, the world and the time and the history, it, we, we think about it, consider this, this globe that we're on, and we might say, well, life began in the garden. Life began on day number six. We study our Bibles, we read the first book of Genesis, and Life began in the Garden of Eden. The birthday of life was the sixth day when God breathed the breath of life into man and woman, right? That's in Genesis, Genesis 1, 26. And I'll read you a few verses. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So life began on the sixth day, the beginning of life in at least one sense. But that life ushered in something, didn't it? That life ushered in sin. That life ushered in death. Death because of sin. So life is what? So life's now finite. Life has now got a beginning and an end. Life is toil and it's, it's thorns and it's thistles. It's a start and a finish. And in Genesis 3.19, we read, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, into dust you will return. And there it is. There is the finality of it all, the finiteness of it. It's the curse of death. From the ground you were taken, and that's where we were all taken from. These, these shells that we walk around in, they're dust, they're clay, and they're going back to dust. That's, it. That's a, a guarantee, unless we just happen to be here, when the Lord returns, we're going to die. We're going back to dust. This, this life is restricted. It's predictable. It's finite. But last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we celebrated something different, a different kind of life, right? 
Resurrection life, everlasting life, infinite life, not finite, eternal life. And that's huge. That's different. That is something that should change perspectives. It should change paradigms. It should change outlooks. For the world, real life, infinite life, eternal life began on the first Easter Sunday. That's when life truly began. The apostles and that that close-knit group of companions of Jesus, these disciples who had held on to this sliver of hope, uh, they were terrorized, but they they still questioned, I'm sure, what, what did he mean by he's going and he's coming back? Well, on that day when they found the tomb empty, they were awakened on that resurrection morning to a sense of what Jesus meant when he said things like, I am come that they might have life and life to the full or life more abundantly, John 10.10. Or when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, again, John's gospel, chapter 11. Or when he spoke again and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14.6, life, life and, and a new, an immensely better life had now dawned on them, and they had this meaning, which included exceedingly and abundantly more than the idea of merely prolonging existence to an end point, where we go back to dust. It's worth noting that the, the friction and the, the fights that Uh, Jesus had experienced with the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who were so against him. The battles that Jesus had with these Jewish leaders during uh, those times, he attempted to drive home this sense of what true life is. What were they concerned about? We've talked about it for several weeks leading up to Easter. And on many occasions, these scribes, these Pharisees, these chief priests, they were fussing about religious rules. They were fussing over rituals and Sabbath laws. And Jesus speaks to them about everlasting life. John 5 is an example. John chapter 5. John 5 is the account of a man in uh, Jerusalem, and he's laying at the pool of Bethesda. He's there, it's by the the sheep gate that it says in John chapter 5 that this pool of Bethesda was there and the water was said to heal people from time to time. And so there's a man there and he's, he's a lame man, he's crippled and he cannot make it to the pool every time there's an opportunity for healing. Each time the opportunity presents itself, the man's unable to get there to the water. He is so infirmed. As a matter of fact, John tells us 38 years this man had an infirmity and he could not make it to the pool to be healed. And then Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus instantly heals the man. Instantly heals the man. He says to him, Pick up your mat and walk. Obediently, I'm sure, but I'm guessing this guy is thrilled. Hey, think about it. 38 years you couldn't walk. 38 years you're laying on a mat, hoping for some something that could help you. And then this man comes along, he heals you, you stand up, 
And he says, pick up your mat and walk. I would pick up my mat and walk. And what occurred? These Pharisees, these, these chief priests, these people that strained at the, the law, they said, hey, it's a Sabbath day. It's the day of rest. You can't be carrying your mat. Can you believe it? 38 years. This guy had 38 years of Sabbath days. You think they'd show him a little mercy. 38 years he couldn't pick up his mat. And the day that he picks up his mat, they castigate him. Oh, you shouldn't be picking up your mat. You're a sinner. First thing the guy does after 38 years is sin. Yeah, these Pharisees, they're fussing about the minutia of the law. And Jesus tells them what? He tells them about life. You're missing life. John 5, 20. For the Father loves the Son, he said to these Pharisees, and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, than a guy 38 years standing up and walking, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The Father raises people to life. Then Jesus went on to speak of eternal life and a resurrection from death to life. He reiterates it. And then finally, he denounces these Pharisees. John 5, 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does the word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. They are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The Pharisees, overly concerned about rules, regulations, intricacies of religious procedures, straining more and more, refusing, refusing the very scriptures that they say they study diligently and they refuse to, the come, that, to come to the one that the scriptures speak of. They refuse to come to life. Not simply prolonged life. Not simply a few more years to, to carry around things here on this earth until you meet your, your coffin and you're put in a grave. No. Not simply prolong life, but life which ex- uh, extends beyond this one-dimensional life that we have here. Life that's powerful because it shares in the infinite power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. The radiant Jesus because he is light. That's radiant life and it's, it's life brimming. Life brimming, why? Because Jesus offers us living water, and it's life that's satisfied. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of life, and it's life eternal. It's life eternal because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, and he rose from the dead, proving death was defeated. This was the life that this little group of apostles and disciples, they had started to realize there's something to it. There's something to it. They saw this empty tomb. And then they met the resurrected Jesus. And so they began to change 
their way of thinking and changed their way of speaking, and they began to preach and teach about this life. And they were the ones who began to say things like, in Him we live and we move and we have our being. This is the life that they were uh, talking about, and they were realizing that this is not some abstract concept. The eternal, everlasting life in Jesus Christ is authentic, and it's real, and it's the life that these Pharisees who studied so diligently, it's the life they refused. And let me tell you today, there's Pharisees in the world. There are those that refuse life, and yet they study the Scriptures diligently. In the free press uh, last Sunday, it was pointed out to me that there was a, uh, an op-ed by an Episcopal priest or a retired Episcopal priest about the resurrection. And this op-ed is titled, on Easter, an alternative approach to the resurrection. Oh, what's the alternative? I'm wondering. So I want to read you a few of the excerpts. This is, this is the Detroit Free Press on Easter Sunday, the high holy day of Christianity. This is the op-ed that they published. And here's what the author writes, this, this uh, priest. The idea of the resurrection can be confusing to those who have been told by religious leaders Religious leaders, they trust that their dead loved ones have decamped to heaven. By contrast, certain brands of evangelicalism insist that the dead will become alive again. Well, by golly, I do. I do insist that the dead in Christ will become alive again. He goes on to write, In my years as a parish priest, I avoided all conjecture having to do with physical resurrection for the simple reason that I know enough science to understand that things don't work that way. Clergy who do their homework know that the resurrection proclamations found in Scripture are by no means unique in antiquity. They should know that the Gospels were never meant to be taken as factual accounts and are instead progressively more dramatic narratives spun to create an image of godlike human being out of a Galilean peasant servant or several such characters about whose lives precious little is known. The Easter story is not the work of journalists. No good can come from torturing it into news, good or otherwise. It is a story with meaning. What is its meaning? It cannot be that a convicted revolutionary who was executed on a Friday walked out of his grave on Sunday to the profound amazement of his followers. It can't be. This is a person who studies the Scriptures. This is a person who devoted his life, really, to the study of Scriptures. But this is a man that I would call a modern-day Pharisee, a priest, a scholar of biblical text, it says in the byline. He studies the Scriptures diligently, the very Scriptures that testify about Jesus Christ. And yet... He refuses life. No, it can't be. It can't be that he walked out of the grave. How could he? How could he walk out of the grave? After all, to him there is no Jesus. Jesus is a composite figure. 
Jesus is a composite made up of several Galilean servant peasants about whose life precious little is known. And he says a good clergyman would tell you that the Gospels were never meant to be factual accounts. If I stood up here and told you the Gospels were never meant to be factual accounts, I'd be violating my ordination vow and I think I'd be uh, run out of here by the trustees of our church. He goes on to say, instead, you know, this, this is a narrative, progressively more dramatic, spun. It's a spun. It's, it's a story that's spun. It's a yarn to create an image of a God-like human being. So to this priest, we must avoid all conjecture having to do with physical resurrection for the simple reason that we know enough science to understand that things don't work that way. Wow. Well, if we disregard the miracle of life, if we disregard the miracle of resurrection life, what does that say about the sting of death? Does the sting of death even exist? And it also stands to reason then if the miracle of life is something we can't, we can't accept because we're too smart for that, well, then we ought to, I guess, disregard every single miracle account in the Bible, right? The Red Sea never parted. The walls of Jericho, well, they never fell. The fiery furnace, which had the three Hebrews inside of it, well, it must have just been cold. There really was no fire in there. Daniel, for uh, all we know, was thrown into a den of kittens, I guess, you know. Uh, water was never turned into wine. Uh, blind eyes never saw the light of day. Uh, deaf ears were never opened uh, to hear the wonders of the world. Human feet never walked on water. Storms could never be calmed. Loaves and fishes, they were never multiplied, right? Because we're too smart for that. I know science doesn't work that way. It's all conjecture, it's all make believe. Well, what about the forgiveness of sins? Can I even believe in that? No resurrection power. Everything about Jesus is dead. It's dead. He's a lifeless, composite figure. Not my Jesus. Not my Jesus. My Jesus is alive. My Jesus lives. Life, the beginning of true, eternal life occurred when Jesus Christ conquered death and he left behind an empty tomb. It was a reality and it occurred, I said it last week, I said it last week and I'll say it again that the resurrection is an encapsulation of our faith. If you believe the resurrection, then the rest is axiomatic. The rest is included. If you believe in the resurrection, then the parting of the Red Sea is nothing. The walls of Jericho fell. The fiery furnace was, was fired up seven times hotter and three men were in there and they lived and their clothes didn't even smell and a fourth appeared to them. Daniel was thrown in a lion's den and he lived to tell about it. Water was turned into the best wine ever. Blind eyes were open to see. Deaf ears were were open to hear. Human feet walked on water. Storms were calmed by the Son of the living God. Loaves and fishes were multiplied. Miracles were, were happening and they occurred. 
And that's why I said, Paul wrote Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe God raised him from the dead, because if you believe that, the rest is easy. You believe the rest. Paul encapsulates faith in that little verse about the resurrection. The resurrection miracle says all these other miracles are possible, and they all happened by the power that is the author of life, Jesus Christ. And in the next few weeks, I want to talk to you about living in this life. You know, Pastor Julie said last week, life is like a vapor. It's just this little blip. We're here for a while, and then we're gone. And that is true. That is true when you compare this life of yours, this life of mine, with the idea of an eternity. Finiteness compared to infinity is, is immense. It's amazing. It's huge. We can't even comprehend it. If we tried to draw it to scale, we wouldn't see it. It's, it's like one grain of sand in the desert. That's life. That's life that's a vapor. It's like one drop of water in an ocean. You'll never see it. It's that small. Life compared to eternity. But guess what? We still have to live this life. And while we're here, I'll tell you what, while I'm here, it doesn't really seem that short. You know, there are days that never seem to come to an end. You know, one crisis after another. One headache that turns into a migraine. Lord, when's this day going to end? It seems so long. And then the next day is a repeat. Life seems so long. Life, well, what about this vapor, God? You know, every day is 24 hours. Every week is seven days. Every year is 52 weeks. We've got to live them all. And yes, it's easy to say life's a vapor. We can when we say we're comparing it to eternity. But we've got to live those minutes. We've got to live those days. We've got to live those years. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it means to live here in the here and now. And next week, living under leadership. You know, we have to live our lives under leaders. We have to submit to civil leaders. We have to submit to spiritual leaders. We have to live life without worry. The Bible talks about that. Life has worth and value. I want to talk to you about that. We must begin, though, when we're living this life on this earth, we must begin with the premise that life begins with Jesus. Because if you haven't arrived there, you haven't arrived to life. you got to arrive to Jesus. We have to start there. We have to start with the premise that Jesus is life. And any attempt to live outside of Christ is no life at all. Life in Christ is the starting point. In Matthew chapter 10, we read Jesus talking about it, and he says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We have to start there with finding life. The Episcopal priest, he found his life. He found it all in his self-interpretation of the Scripture. He found it in his scholarly pronouncements. He is the author of his own life. But he hasn't found true life. And that's a sad, sad commentary for a man devoted to the Scriptures. You know, Jesus said, whoever loses their life for my sake, they'll find it. 
So thus, whoever gives up being their own author, whoever gives up being their own destiny setter and the definer of their own path, whoever gives that up and sees that Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth, and I'm no longer going to be defining my own truth because Jesus is the truth and He is the life. When you see that, you gain life. You gain life. And that's immense and it's powerful and it's everlasting life. So we have to start with this premise that Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus is the center of life. Have you made Jesus the center of your life? He's got to be the center of your life. And even if you've said, yes, yes, I've made him the center of my life, I've made him the center of my life too. But sometimes too, we can get off center. Sometimes we can waver a little bit and we need to come back and say, Jesus, I need to put you right back at center. I need to put you at, at, at ground zero. I was talking with Reverend Allen a little bit, and he reminded me a bit of uh, my past. Before coming to the church, engineering was my life, and I worked a lot with variation. You know, you could draw up a tool or a part. When you drew a part and it, it had a surface or a hole, you put a tolerance on that. A hole had a certain place where that center of that hole had to be. Now, on the print, it was exactly at a particular point. But a tolerance would be put on that, a position tolerance that said that's, that, that center of that circle can live somewhere in this tolerance. But if it moved a little bit away, bad things could happen. Disasters. I remember being at a fabrication plant. I won't say the name of the, uh, the auto company. They were putting together underbodies and me and this colleague of mine were, were watching underbodies get destroyed. Big hole, big hole. Supposed to center on a pin. Simple. It was a big, huge conduit hole. This underbody's coming together. It's a major component of an automobile. And the hole is missing the pin and it's getting smashed. And these underbodies are stacking up. They're losing money. It's just a little bit off of center. Just a little bit off center. Disaster. Is Jesus the center of your life? I believe so many of you, like me, have made Jesus the center of it all, the center of your life. Sometimes we get a little off-center, though. I've gotten off-center. Gotten off-center. Had a few crashes, if you will, not lining up center. And I need to sometimes reposition a little bit come back on center you know if you're a degree off on a pathway when you get to your destination you can be miles from where you were going because you were just a little off I want to invite you if you're if you've experienced any and I'm not here to pull on you to say you should tell me or admit but you can talk to God about why you might just be a little off center and get back on center. And I also want to say, if you've never put Jesus Christ at the center of your life, you're missing true life. You're missing eternal life. You're missing all that he has for you that's immense and, and, and powerful. And I invite you to receive that today. I want you to receive it today. It's my desire that you would put Jesus as number one in your life. It's true. Jesus is not some composite figure. 
that was just dreamt up. No, he was real. He walked this earth. He died for you. He made a way for you to be reconciled unto God, and he walked out of a tomb alive. It's true, and it's real. And if you receive it and ask him to forgive your sins, heart, heart sincere, he will forgive you and offer you a new way of life. I just invite you to stand as we sing Jesus at the center of it all. And if you need prayer, if you need to be, if you need to uh, put Jesus at, at the center, come on down to these altars. We've got, we've got people here. We have elders of the church. We have deacons of the church. We have altar workers who would pray with you and just offer you some help in getting Jesus back to center. Father, thank you, God. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your divine spirit, Lord. May we never, ever deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that as we leave today, as we go about our week, we would keep you central, Jesus, your way and your truth. Be our life, Lord. May we keep you at the center of our life. I pray you'd give everyone in this room strength, power. Lord, I pray that uh, that same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead would just really bring life and keep us, keep us, Lord. Keep us all centered. May our hearts be in your word. May our life be in your word. Direct us by your word, God. May there be no uh, wind to blow us, Lord, off or push us away, or a storm to knock us off center. Keep us, Lord, through it all centered on you. I pray for that, God. I pray that blessing upon everyone here. Grant them that, God. Grant them that peace and that help, Lord. And bring us back safe to praise you and worship you again. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Go in his peace and... uh, Yeah, remember it was Paul Harvey, it wasn't Paul Carey. Sorry about that.